This is Sound of Phillips, a KRSM radio podcast exploring South Minneapolis, the communities who live and work here, the complex issues we face, and the myriad ways that neighbors are rising to the challenge. I'm your host, Arna Landrum. This fall, the city of Minneapolis budget has been making waves and headlines. After announced cuts to the Minneapolis Police Department budget, and an exodus of officers from the force following a summer of uprising and mass protests after the death of George Floyd, Minneapolis Police Chief Arredondo requested $500,000 to help shore up the police force. The request would cover additional officers from Metro Transit and Hennepin County Sheriff's deputies. The city council narrowly approved this request, putting the city budget front and center for advocates, activists, business owners, and residents. Chief Arredondo's request for additional funding and extra personnel comes after city council members publicly declared their intention to decrease the department's funding in line with activist calls to defund the department and begin looking into community alternatives. What you're about to hear is an excerpt from an interview with community member, artist, and movement elder Ricardo Levens Morales, about the debate surrounding policing in Minneapolis. We spoke at length about MPD 150, a community-based initiative examining and evaluating 150 years of the Minneapolis Police Department. We also chatted about the history of policing in the United States, as well as some history of resistance to police violence, and the hot bars Frederick Douglass spit as the 19th century's greatest blogger. This interview was recorded on November 9th, 2020, less than a week after the 2020 general election. Our guest today is my comrade and friend, Ricardo Levens Morales. Hi, Ricardo. Hello. (laughs) Ricardo is an artist and organizer based in Minneapolis. He uses his art as a form of political medicine to support individual and collective healing from the injuries and ongoing reality of oppression. He was born into the anti-colonial movement in his native Puerto Rico and was drawn into activism in Chicago when his family moved there in 1967. Ricardo left high school early and worked in various industries and over time began to use his art as part of his movement work. This activism has included support for the Black Panthers and Young Lords and participating in or acting in solidarity with farmers, environmental, labor, racial justice, anti-war, and other struggles for people's empowerment. He was a founding member of the Northland Poster Collective, which was active from 1979 to 2009. He also leads workshops on creative organizing, social justice strategy, and sustainable activism, and mentors and supports organizers. The worker members of RLM Art Studio are represented by the Newspaper and Communications Guild and CWA. Ricardo's work is widely used by grassroots movements, organizations, and communities, and you can see it just over my shoulder here. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, Ricardo. Pleasure to be here. Um, So you may have heard there was an election recently. Again? Again. It seems like we have those so regularly. Mm. Um, But that's actually not what I want to talk about just yet. I wanted to talk... Well, actually, let me start here. I was recently on a panel, um, and the panel was talking about arts, um, arts in organizing, and organizing with the arts. 
And one of the discussions that was coming up is how frequently people think of arts in the movement as decoration, right? Like we need a banner or we have this program and we should start it with a poet. Mm -hmm. um, and like really, uh, unless they're in the work the way that you are, separate them um, and use them sort of, you know, just like as set pieces with each other instead of an integrated kind of movement strategy. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to talk to you because you have been um, an artist organizer for such a long time about what you think the role of artists in social movements and social change is and why, like why you've chosen that as your lane, why you've chosen art <laughs> as your primary way of being involved in liberation movement. Yeah, well, I think in my case, I'm not sure if I chose art or if art chose me. Um, yeah. I always loved to draw when I was young, so it made sense organically as it became more involved in social justice movements that the art would come with me, right? And already had that developed as a skill set. But I mean, for me, yeah, I can't even make that separation anymore. It's like, I think of organizing as an art form. And, you know, my template is that there are really only two kinds of organizing. And the first is the kind that recognizes storytelling, which is what art is storytelling narrative at being as being at the heart of what we're doing, whether it's on the tactical level, the personal level, the strategic level, the vision level. And then there's the kind that hasn't figured it out yet. Right? So that mm. when we look at movements, really what gives them sort of shape and momentum and a, and a direction to go in is a story. It's a narrative, a narrative of freedom or a narrative of hope or a narrative of equality. And if you look at how the Trump phenomenon, right, has played out, that's been a struggle over what story is going to be dominant, right? Right. Very clearly, if you say, well, immigrants are thieves and rapists and whatever, that's creating a story that makes certain policies possible. Right. Right. I think of it in terms of soil and seeds, that the soil is more important than the seeds. You cultivate the soil of people's understanding, the culture, the values, and then whatever your organizing project seeds you know, plants that you plant, they'll grow in good soil, they won't grow in toxic soil. Okay, I mean, I actually really like thinking about um, organizing as an art form, mm. um, because that, I don't know, it just feels inspiration, inspirational to me in a certain way, especially when we've had uh, a few years, like the last few years that we've had, where it feels like um, we're, we're getting clobbered all the time, but have like a small victory here in a small victory there. And so um, let me just ask you more about that. How does it how does it help you and keep you in the movement to think about um, organizing itself as an art form? Well, I think, I mean, that can be answered on so many levels because the relationship of art to human beings is actually very complex. You know, it's been adapted just like our hands have been adapted, just like our vocal cords have been adapted, right? Depending on where we're at in our evolutionary and social history, right? But I think what art does is it tells a story heart to heart. Okay. Right? It's a way in which I open my heart to your heart and we can communicate in a way that bypasses the roadblocks of the intellect. Right, and often it's on this level, on the on the level of the the narratives that we've absorbed, that we feel hopeless, that there aren't possibilities, that oh, you're you're saying 
something about abolishing the police. Well, that is just so crazy because I have all these these messages that tell me that it's not even possible I won't entertain it. Right. But if you can say it in a song, if you can speak with poetry, it awakens in you the idea that maybe something different is possible. You know, it's about telling stories that resonate, right? And if we think about what does that word mean? What does resonate mean? It means that if I strum this chord, you already have chord, you know, strings tuned to that tuning in, in you and they start to hum. Yeah. Right? So that when we talk about the deep messages of hope, of connectivity, of kindness, um, it's not like we artists are introducing or organizers are in introducing a new idea. We're reminding people of what they already know in a way that they can finally hear it. So I feel like that's a lot of the way, and I, I want to introduce this because I, I realize, you know, that we have people watching this who don't know, don't know you as well as I do, and don't know your work, your work as well as I do. Um, last month, Daily Coast Liberation League had an Abolition 101 training with some Minneapolis-based organizers at Reclaim the Block, and in that training, they really referenced the MPD 150 project a number of times, and I know for me that that was a project that really spoke a lot to um, possibility and really did open my heart to thinking more and more about a Minneapolis without a police department or without police because that isn't actually, you know, there's a this kind of this story that we have with ourselves that we can't do it a different way because this is the way that it's always been. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, the Abolition 101 training uh, referenced the MPD 51, uh, the MPD 150 project a number of times. I know that I was really impressed and fascinated with this project because of how deeply arts rooted it was. Could you talk to us a little bit about uh, about MPD 150, sort of how it started and how, um, how you think it's like doing the storytelling around abolition? Yeah, well, MPD 150, first of all, MPD stands for Minneapolis Police Department. Thank you. And 150 represents 150 years. Uh, the Minneapolis police were founded in 1867, right? A lot of police departments rose up right in the wake of uh, emancipation. And, um, and in the case of Minnesota, the expulsion of the Dakota people after a, uh, a war in, in the 1860s. So back in 2016, a number of us in conversation noticed that the following year, 2017, would be the 150th anniversary of the Minneapolis Police Department. We thought, dang, you know, it's maybe time to do a performance review. Don't think it's ever been done, right? Right. And we looked around and said, well, what's the history of the MPD? What's their official history, right? We can maybe riff off of that and use this anniversary to tell some different stories. There was no official history. Um, you know, there was no plans to commemorate, to celebrate, to look back. So we had to start from scratch. And so we basically contacted a lot of individuals throughout the organizing ecosystem and said, hey, we got a project. We'd like to, for a limited amount of time, get a bunch of us focusing on the history, the reality, and the possible future of community safety and policing in, in the city of Minneapolis. And with the idea of permanently changing the conversation around the police, right? And so we had teams that did research, historical research into the history of the police going back to its origins. 
and we produced a report in three sections, past, present, and future. In the past, this deep dive into the different stages of the history of the police and the conclusions were pretty clear that the police are, first of all, unreformable. There's been many attempts to do that and that's by design. And second of all, they were instituted in order to maintain uh, white supremacy in the wake of emancipation, right? And that's another story we can go into. But then we had interview teams. The interview team went out and spoke with um, a social service workers and people working in battered women's shelters and um, with uh, with you know youth counselors in high schools and people whose work made them interface with the police. It's like, okay, what's that experience like for you? What are your people, the people who you serve, how do they feel about having the police involved? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what your work would be like if the cops weren't there? Spoiler alert, they all could... <laughs> they yeah. all thought it through. And then we went and looked at what are the alternatives that are out there? What are the ways in which people keep each other safe? What are the ways, what are the causes of crises? The, okay. the stresses that cause financial and mental health crises? What could be done to address those? And then what can we imagine or what models exist for dealing with that small percentage of crises that still happen? when you've dealt with the underlying issues, right? Stable housing, you know, healthy food, good schools, uh, decent living wages. I mean, that takes care of most of it, right? And then right. how do you deal with the remainder without relying on a 19th century white supremacist militia, right? And, and the alternatives are there. So that was kind of, that's the background on the production of the report itself. Okay. It's also has an audiobook version and we did zines and there's a lot of ways in which we creatively pushed this narrative out. But the one thing I want to say about it that was really kind of astounding to us is that here we were st- strictly a narrative operation. We weren't working on policy. We're not working on those kinds of things. Just want to change the story so that th- that other kind of work can become possible. Okay. And what we found was that people were so much more receptive than we could have imagined. Like almost everyone is like, whoa, you know, at first that's kind of a, that's crazy talk. Mm-hmm. How can you imagine not having police in our lives, right? Who are we going to turn to? But after they've either, de- either delved into our materials or had a conversation with us or been to one of our workshops, it doesn't make converts of everybody necessarily, but they go away thinking, whoa, I had never thought about it that way before. When you break down what the police actually do, evaluate what do they actually do well? What do they do not so well that other people should be doing? Yeah. What do they do that actually nobody should do because it shouldn't be done, you end up with a very different picture of what's possible. So I want to, uh, let's go back to the, the conclusions um, because there's two of them that I want to go back into. The first, that the police are unreformable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definite. Well, no, I'm not going to editorialize on that. Actually, let me just ask you, how through this process did, uh, did you determine and by you, I mean like the collective of organizers and artists that was involved in this. How did you determine that there wasn't a reform that was going to make, make one, the Minneapolis Police Department or police departments at all uh, stewards of public safety? Well, we start by, by going back to the DNA, right? What was the functionality of police in its early history? And it comes from a number, they come from a number of sources. 
One, as people are starting to, to become more familiar with, was the slave patrols. And in some cases, in some cities, it was actually the militias pulled together to put down slave rebellions mm-hmm. that a couple of few years later were reconstituted as the new police departments, right? They were also what were called the night watches up in the Northeast, where they were essentially um, armed teams working to protect factories from the immigrant workforce and put down strikes. And then in the Southwest, you had groups like the uh, Texas Rangers, whose function was basically to terrorize Mexicanos and indigenous people and uh, appropriate their land for white folks. So you have these kinds of, of threads. Um, and so one question we ask is, when did that mission change? Mm-hmm. And looking through all the periods of history, we discover there is no time we can point to when they were not fulfilling that mission, right? So that part of their function, both in terms of class and in terms of race, is to maintain a permanent underclass. And this, the way in which that's happened has changed through the different phases of police history, because the police system has evolved over the, the century and a half to two centuries that it's been around. And then we look at, well, what is it that has been done to try to change that, right? Mm-hmm. We look at you know struggles going back to the 1920s, going back to the 30s and 40s, where you have, for example, in the 1950s, um, Ella Baker, one of the legendary organizers of the civil rights movement, at that time she lived in New York City. And a couple of black guys were beaten up by the cops very badly, brutally, in the police station for no particular reason, and the community was up in arms, right? Mm-hmm. And they protested, and eventually um, what they won was uh, sensitivity training for the police and a civilian review board, right? right? That was the New York Police Department. Looking at New York now, how would folks think say that that has worked out, right? So you get these institutions, these changes, these reforms um, that are put into place and have basically evaporated within a few years. Like maybe three years later, there's rarely a trace. Or a civilian review board starts out with mostly civilians and then cops get added to it. And then whatever authority they had gets transferred to the police chief who makes the final call. If they had power, they lose it. Um, And the police have very well established strategies for undermining and eroding these things so that police reforms don't particularly worry them. They irritate them. They don't like them, but they're done away with. You know, in the recent era, we have what are called um, consent decrees, right? The Justice Department will come in, take over a police department, evaluate all these policies, manage it for for a couple of years, put in all these requirements for how you behave. Two years later, three years later, and there have been studies done on this. All those reforms, those that were instituted, they're gone, right? So that you have this... In fact, at one point while we were working on the report, I actually looked up in some different online dictionaries the definition of the word reform, and I found two of them. Okay. One of them is to reform something, meaning to change it so that it's somewhat different than it was before. The other definition of reform is to revert something back to the, its previous condition, to reform it the way it was, right? Right. right. You know, And yeah, I think that's yeah. what we're dealing with, is that the community demands reform, meaning let's change and the police institute reform, meaning within a few years, it's going to default back to the way it was. So it becomes part of a cycle, part of a cycle that just sort of maintains basically a cycle of abuse. Where it's like, honey, I'm never going to do that again. I'm so sorry, right? That's the reform. And then 
you know, you go back to that same, I think we're on our either, I think we're on our sixth civilian review board in Minneapolis right now, right? They come and they go. I also thinking about like, um, when you said abusive relationship, because mm. there's the honey, I won't ever do it again. But there's also, right, I feel like a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of what we're seeing um, as a backlash to um, the uprisings that started in Minneapolis and across the country this summer, more of an abusive kind of, look what you made me do. Look mm. what you made me do. I wouldn't have to brutalize you this way if you would only listen, if you would only not come up against me like this. Look what you made me do. And mm. it's just like, how how can police sit within this um, this idea of being public servants while also abusing the public and saying it's your fault? Right, and that's, that it really relates to a deeply embedded culture in the police that they are the thin blue line against chaos and they're misunderstood. Right. These stupid civilians who are in charge don't understand that there's a war going on, right? And so it makes sense to fight the enemy, right? And the enemy is the enemy. There are good guys and bad guys. And Frederick Douglass predicted this actually during the Civil War when he was looking at what might be the dangers post-emancipation of what white folks are gonna do, right? And that one of those dangers is to continue treating black folks collectively. So that if a white person does something either good or bad, it's their own merit or their own fault. When black folks do something good, it's an exception to the rule. When they do something bad, um, bad by the white definition, right. a collective crime because that's just in their nature, right? So that it's okay within that framework to frame somebody because even if they didn't do the particular crime, their kind did, right? And you're you're sending a message that, that you know people have to work out and be obedient, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think also what you're pointing out is speaks to the particular moment that we're in because there's another change that's happened with the uprising. Um, the best way to describe it, I reference the anti-colonial struggles in Africa in. I think it was 1952, the Algerian um, resistance movement to France that was fighting for independence called a general strike okay. to demonstrate to the world, especially to the United Nations, how much support they had to show that, yeah, that we're not just this little group of terrorists that the French keep saying we are, we represent the people. And it was a very successful general strike. But what it did is it showed the French authorities that all the people were against them. Until then, they had thought, well, we got to be careful, you know, who we torture, who we shoot, right? Because we don't want to alienate people. The general strike told them, actually, we don't have to worry about that anymore. And they were able to unleash repression against everybody. Well, right? so, but, yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. Well, what I want to say about that is that um, I think we're in a similar moment, that the uprising has told the police that in their mind right now, and you see this in the way some of the departments are starting to behave, um, you know, openly aligning with white supremacists, endorsing Trump and so forth, is that to them, the uprising revealed that there are really two kinds of people in the United States. Those who are against them, and they're hopeless. There's nothing gonna convince them, so you don't need to treat them nice. And those who are gonna support them no matter what. Right. right. So that and that's clear who they want to align with. So that that kind of liberal middle ground of we're going to be all things to all people seems to have receded right now. 
and it's like very clear. Some people need to be punished. Some people need to be protected. Um, it's kind of like the like the veil is lifted. This has been Sound of Phillips, a KRSM radio podcast exploring South Minneapolis and the complex issues we face as people who live and work here. This is Arna Landrum on KRSM Radio 98.9 FM. Till next time, keep dreaming Southside.